Hello, everybody. I'm Ron Waxman and uh, Spencer King. We are in another episode of The King and I. And um, we're going to discuss today on conflict of interest. Uh, and the reason that I brought this uh, topic today, because there was a recent uh, piece of news that 80% of those who write the European guidelines have conflict of interest. So I kind of wanted to start the issue of conflict of interest and guidelines and see what you thought about it, Spencer. Something, something needs to be done about the restriction on, on experts participating in, in guideline production. Um, you say 80% of the Europeans had conflicts of interest. I, I'm sure 80% of Americans have some conflict of interest if you define it broadly. Uh, but, uh, and I, I'm a strong believer that we ought to have independent, uh, you know, guidelines that ought, ought to be not influenced by industry at all. Uh, it ought to be completely separate, but then to take that and say that anybody who's, uh, been working on trials, been working in industry in any way, uh, with, uh, with industry is restricted from being on the guidelines. I think that needs a very much narrower uh, definition. Uh, okay, if you are, uh, you know, the owner of a company that is going to write guidelines about what that company makes, of course, that's, you know, you, you should not be, you should not be on the on the guideline uh, committee at all. But if you are a researcher who has studied something and the guidelines relate to that, and you've done an independent study that's uh, passed all, all uh, uh, credibility of being independent, and it's uh, uh, then, then you know, your expertise is a value for that guideline. Uh, so it's it's a it's a difficult proposition. The easy way is to say anybody with any uh, relationship with uh, an industry that has anything to do with this guideline should not be on the guideline committee. And then you can claim, okay, we're free from any prejudice or, or bias about this guideline, which may or may not be true. And another peeve of mine is that uh, people say, okay, well, we just reveal the guidelines. So that goes all the way to people saying everything that my institution has touched, I'll put down as a conflict. And I'll just say I'm conflicted uh, about everything, which then jumps out and say, well, no, you're not. So it becomes meaningless. So I think there needs to be a much more serious thought about whether the relationships do uh, cause the person to be, to influence the person about, about the guideline. But the biggest problems we have about guidelines are not so much that they're being written to favor one industry or another. The biggest problem we have uh, about the ACCAHA guidelines is it takes so blooming long to get them out and they're so cumbersome and so long and so uh, difficult. Uh, so that's that's big, bigger limitation. The European guidelines uh, are, if you say that 80% of the people are have a relationship who, who write guidelines, well, uh, those guidelines come out, they're crisper, they're more uh, temporarily in, in contact with, with the evidence that's been generated. And so people use them. Uh, are they 
biased, uh, more more biased than uh, U.S. guidelines. Somebody ought to study that because I my my own impression is they're probably not. Uh, and yet uh, they've uh, they've got a lot of people with uh, relationships. If you go totally away from relationship, you have people write guidelines about uh, stuff that have no experience with it. Uh, and they're just reading uh, the papers, or they've not been involved in the research. They've never. Uh, I mean, how much? How many, how many of our guidelines are actually uh, level of evidence uh, uh, A? Well, they're not. There, there's some Bs. There's a lot of Cs in there. Well, how do you get to be a guideline with level of evidence C if you've had no experience with whatever that is? That's uh, you know that you, you have no definitive scientific evidence, and you're going on what is uh, accepted in the practice. So, being in the practice is a bit helpful for that, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of very good points. I mean, I think. You can take a bunch of uh, urologists and neurologists and tell them, okay, you're not going to be conflicted with any ACS guidelines or any device guidelines like TAVAR and go ahead and write the guidelines. They'll give you a bunch of papers or you go and do literature research and put the guidelines for the cardiologists and vice versa. We'll do guidelines for the neurologist or the urologist. Um, but it comes to a point of um, how much of this today and I don't know, I mean, I've never been sitting on a guidelines committee and you, I don't know if, what was your experience, Spencer, but you know, today we have a lot of mechanistic ways which we can look, okay, here's all the paper, here's all the data, you input that in a scientific way without any clinical judgment by someone who potentially can be impacted uh, by his relationship with industry on the outcome and you know, if you input all those things to the computer, you get the level of evidence, what you should do, what you should not do. Uh, and then the question was the quality of the papers that you, or the studies that you input into this uh, computer to get the, so, so it should be a computer generated guidelines. Well, I've been on many of the guideline committees, most of them uh, well before this uh, serious uh, concern about uh, the conflict of interest story or at least the, the, the restrictions. And uh, it occurs to me that uh, once you've written the guideline, the reason they are so uh, long uh, in coming out, the reason that the time frame is so long, is uh, this is, remember, a ACC-AHA collaborative operation and sometimes supported by other organizations such as SKY and so forth. So. These, these guidelines, first of all, are developed. Then they go out for review to people who are uh, allegedly experts in the field and so forth. They get criticized. I mean, guidelines, you, you think about re paper reviewing journal papers, guidelines get reviewed much more and, and much more in depth. And uh, once they've done all that, then they go to the committees, uh, they go to the ACC. And ACC has to sign off all the way to the board. Uh, then it goes to the American Heart, and they have to all their people. They have to sign off on it. They have to. So there's so much that goes in there. If they're if somebody is uh, blowing the horn for some particular uh, industry or therapy or whatever, uh, there are a lot of checks and balances to you know point out that this this is okay. Here's who wrote this. 
we all know that he's in the pocket of somebody and he's he's saying things that uh, are not supportable and you know whatever throw them off but to start in the very beginning say that anybody who really has knowledge but also has worked with uh, industry in any way should not be an author uh, I mean it's not even a, rest a restriction for being an author on journal articles you can be an author if you're a medical director of the uh, company but you got to put down the conflicts and other people have to review it and they say well it looks like this paper was influenced by that person and we don't like these things so the reviews but I think the reviews in the uh, guideline process uh, they're clearly not inadequate in terms of the reviews what needs to be figured out is how to make those reviews quicker yeah, and obviously that has a lot of impact on meetings and also journals so uh, I felt I mean my feeling is that over the past years we you know we look at the guideline sessions they always packed almost like late breaking trials so people pay much more attention to guidelines than like 15 20 years ago which no one cares and the other good point that you made that at the end of the day there is a lot of similarity between the European guidelines and the, and, and the USA CCAHA guidelines there's not like much discrepancy and it's just a question of time I mean the Europeans really updating this on a on a, on a almost on a yearly basis where the US you have to wait to three years and then uh, the question of how this is impacting practice and journals so from the practice uh, if we don't have any uh, U.S. guidelines, we say, okay, well, this is what the European says, and the U.S. is updated like from eight years ago. So let's go by what the European said, but they say, wait a minute, we are practicing in the U.S. Why should we count on what's coming from Europe? We don't know what's constitute, and we can argue that those guide guidelines are not accurate. And then you have an impact on the journals. Uh, European Heart Journal published all those guidelines. They are highly cited. They come here every year and then they beating jack and circulation in impact factor so your thoughts on these uh issues no that, that's that's always a big concern for journal editors you know that uh, the guidelines suck up most of the most of the uh citations in fact last time i looked at it the top 20 citations for a, a year were, were 19 of them were guidelines or guidelines or things of that sort and uh, yeah, I, I noticed that Jack is sort of battling back from, from that by creating other type material that sounds like guidelines, expert consensus documents and things of this sort that uh, people might uh, uh, cite a lot. Uh, so uh, that's a whole other subject, what should be an impact factor. I mean, it's, truthfully, none of this stuff should be an impact factor. Guidelines are not original. Uh, uh, science guidelines are just a collection of everything people know. So the idea that the guidelines uh, influence your uh, impact factor is, is wrong, but that's the way it is. It's in there and people have to play that game. So we do, they, do, they do influence impact factor for sure. Um, they do not uh, influence reimbursement. I don't see that any reimbursement by CMS looking that's the guidelines so we have to pay or we don't have to pay. They have their own judgment, uh, what they're going to pay for and their own criteria. Uh, it's not really impacting on device approval. Usually they're coming after device approval, but if in, if you look at European 
guidelines, they can be related to a device that was not approved in the US. Uh, so I don't think that that has any impact on regulatory. So why they are so important? I mean, why as a physician, uh, I'm really need to look at those guidelines and where, where is the where is the strength of the guidelines for, for impacting on- Well, let, let me turn the question to you. How much is uh, standard of care uh, judged to be, the guidelines are, 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 a, are a printed version of standard of care. Uh, I know it's they've been used. I've been asked to comment on, on cases occasionally in, in legal matters. And so if the guidelines you know, the guidelines are drug out frequently in, in legal proceedings, certainly in malpractice proceedings. So this may be one reason. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think that this is actually maybe working against us because uh, any plaintiff can take any guidelines and make sure that you didn't practice by the guidelines. But again, the guidelines can be challenged. I mean, this is not like uh, um, the Bible in my view. And it also doesn't say that you have to um, practiced by the guidelines. This is the recommendation of a bunch of experts who felt that uh, this is what you should do. Uh, that, that duration of the APT, use FFR, don't use FFR, use I, whatever is the guidelines uh, written. But uh, with all due respect, I mean, this is their expert's opinion. They cannot dictate practice. I mean, there is no jurisdiction that says I have to act by the guidelines. I mean, I can have my own uh, protocol in my hospital that would be based on what suits or fits uh, our practice. But I think you mentioned the right thing that's what happens is that uh, plaintiffs can take this and if someone wants to sue you, they're gonna look line by line, did you really follow the guidelines? And then you argue, okay, but that was level evidence B or C, but I think it's still worse than nothing. And then, I mean, how do you defend it? So, What's happening is you're creating a, a tool that can work against you because if this is the only people that's going to use the guidelines, the plaintiff, to sue you, then you know maybe I should not look at the guidelines so much. Yeah, well, I, I don't think the level of evidence probably is, uh, is is so much a worry, but but the classification. If you're a class three, if if it's a class three, it's a contraindication or something uh, that is. For, uh, that is judged to be class three by by your peers, by the people, all those organized societies and everybody uh, decided that this is something you probably shouldn't be doing and you do it and it's in the guideline. Now, maybe that's that's taking it to the extreme. Uh, then the guidelines are very helpful in doing that. Uh, another confusion, though, is between, say, class one and two and two, uh, two A and B, where the language needs to be thought about when people try to use those guidelines, either for practice or defending themselves or whatever. But they need to look at the actual words that go with it, because when you say that something is uh, is uh, uh, should be considered, you know, that's not a contraindication. That's a one. That's a two a. And then if you say something uh, might be considered. That's not a contraindication. That's a 2B. And so, you know, you, you can't make a big case uh, around where they're, but people do this. Uh, they get in huge fights and, and even in industry. Why isn't this thing up to a 2A instead of a 2B? It's almost like they think it's a, it's the, uh, 
a bond rating agency or something like that. It doesn't have that kind of impact. But, but people get confused and they forget to go back to what the words actually mean. Yeah, on the good side, I think it may um, stimulate industries to do well-powered studies because in order to get one A, you need sometimes two studies rather than one study. But one study will give you one B. You want to be one A and you want to be, it's like three-star hospital for surgery. You have to show good performance. So you have to be more data, more studies. Uh, so that's potentially a good thing. It does stimulate the industry to support studies. And I do know that it's very important to industry because many times they ask me, is that study that we're going to do going to make difference in the guidelines? So that means it does important to the industry because it helps them to promote. The guideline says you should do this and you should do that. Um, you mentioned the you know, contraindication. I think we have to be very, very careful. Even the FDA, when they give their approval for devices or labeling, they are trying to refrain from contraindication. But uh, the first example that came to my mind as you were uh, alluding to different levels of evidence and guidelines was, let's say, something that was close to our heart that had some progression, the whole left main intervention. So this is something that I think you were involved as well in looking into the studies uh, or cabbage versus PCI. When we see the different levels came out, so left main was probably was the extreme. And now it's sort of kind of eased a little bit. It's not 1A, but it's not C. So is that because we changed the way that we do left main or that's because we have more data? And if it's today uh, much better guidelines, that means that we were wrong at that time and we actually precluding patients to have the right treatment. Your thoughts on that? No, we were right at that time. We were right. When it, was a, when it was a class three, when we only had balloon angioplasty, left main was a class, unprotected left main was a class three. Uh, that was correct uh, because, you know, you shouldn't have done that because, you know, if it went bad, you were, you were cooked. Uh, then we got stents and we got everything. And then we got some more data and we've got studies and we've got outcomes and they've changed it and you upgrade it. So I think as uh, as the practice changes, the guidelines should change. I, I feel like I, maybe I'm being too negative about guidelines. I, I think the the process of the guideline the guideline process, which is a a reflective thought thinking process, is basically good. You know, we should reflect on the evidence, reflect on everything that's there. The, uh, there should be a group uh, think about this. Uh, it shouldn't be back to the old. Uh, 19th century or something, you say, I'm a doctor so-and-so and I've got my own medicine that I mixed up and I'm going to give it. I just I just heard one about uh, on the news yesterday about amniotic fluid or something that was going to cure COVID. So <laughs> because this, this woman was selling selling uh, stem, quote, stem cell therapy. So the, the era of uh, snake oil salesmen and everything, right? so the, the idea that you get organized and try to think about it and bring forth the evidence is all good. And uh, th there are things that have to be solved about it. And I was encouraged in the conversation that the college is worried about this. Uh, they're trying to deal deal with it. The Europeans have been faster. Maybe the college is more like uh, the FDA full approval of a, of, a, of a vaccine versus the Europeans maybe are willing to issue a emergency authorization for their guidelines 
and move a little quicker. Uh, but uh, within the whole process, uh, kind of putting out what's there for the for the practitioner who uh, you know can't consume all the literature. I mean, the guideline is a wonderful uh, compilation if you want to look at something and uh, you really see if you're on the same you know the right right track. Uh, it, it's uh, it's based on all the literature and experience that people can dredge up. It just uh, is slow and it's too big and it's not. And, and my, my main concern is that they're not used enough uh, because they're too cumbersome. Yeah, I know. I totally agree with you. I think that guidelines are important uh, for many of us who don't know. We need some reference. I mean, you, you cannot go and start to compile 15 papers and you don't know which paper you'll find. So someone did the job for you. So that's very helpful. Uh, I think it is give you guidance what to do, uh, which many times we want to know. We It's kind of a good reference. Uh, the only thing that it has to be updated on, in my view, on a yearly basis. I mean, if we have to find a mechanism to, would be almost, there should be some mechanism that would, would enable to us to enhance the update of the guidelines. And there could be mistakes. I mean, I think that uh, uh, there are some, at least criticism on some of the European guidelines that came because they came that fast and for them, it's very hard to retract it, but they do very queer, quickly adjustments. So they're willing to adjust things within a year or two years, uh, which I think that's probably the best way. It's like when in the era of uh, artificial in intelligence and uh, machine learning, we should put that guidelines also in some um, factors that's just not gonna be the human factor, but beyond that uh, to input everything to get more accuracy. But uh, Overall, it's a positive thing. And uh, just circling back to the way that we started this discussion about the conflict of interest, I frankly not that worried about it. I think if you have full disclosure and you have a bunch of uh, uh, people in the committee and they have been filtered already by different areas of expertise and even by their conflicts, I think it gives you some sort of uh, defense mechanism that you're not going to skew too much just because you were consulted to a company as long as long as the industry is not sitting on the table yeah the, be the best thing is to always have somebody that questions you uh about whatever it is and there are so many conflicts that all of them are not uh, financial and uh, so people have biases all the time and uh, the best balance of that is to have somebody else uh, challenge them on it Great. And with that note, we'll end uh, another episode of The King and I. Thank you, Spencer.